Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As the meteor of time hurdles towards Oscar night, we are, in fact, rounding up a few stray ponies, movies we haven't seen on the nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, this week we will talk uh, about Drive My Car, a Japanese movie with overtones and undertones of Chekhov. I think that's fair enough to say. Uh, also a Saab 1987 Turbo, which I believe is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Um, also, we're going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, a look back to the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s, uh, and the debut of two rather unusual movie stars. Both nominated for Best Picture. We will talk about both of them right after this news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hello, hello. You know, it's been a week, a week since we talked about West Side Story on this show, and I still have... Steve Metcalf and I have this syndrome. I don't know what it's called. I think it's called Metcalf syndrome, where we can get like two to four bars of a song stuck in our heads and they, they just won't go away. And so a week after our West Side Story show, I'm still like I'm walking around the kitchen. I did it this morning at least once. I'm sure the person I live with could tell me how many times I do this every day. But I'm in, like in the kitchen, and it's the same thing every time too. I just look up for what I'm doing, and I and I sing, "Will they begin it? Will they begin it?" And then I fall silent, <laughs> which is going to be fantastically irritating to the people who are not me who have to listen to it. All right. Well, we're not talking about that movie this week. We're talking about two other movies: "Drive My Car" uh, and "Licorice Pizza." They are both nominated for Best Picture in the Academy Awards. They are either very, very different movies or very, very similar movies. And I think persuasive cases can and will be made for both points of view. Uh, and to make those persuasive cases, we have, uh, as usual, a wonderful group of panelists. Tanisha Dugan is a director, producer, and arts consultant. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is development officer at Connecticut Children's. Uh, and... 
Uh, we are going to begin with Licorice Pizza. Uh, this is the ninth feature written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, PTA, if you're a film nerd. Uh, and th- the most recent one was Phantom Thread, which could almost not be more different from Licorice Pizza. Uh, but uh, this is a kind of build- Bildungsroman kind of piece. It's it's. Clearly, Paul Thomas Anderson looking back at his own youth. Uh, he's about 50 years old when he made the movie. That's kind of the beginning of the period when directors and other kinds of auteurs start doing it, start making their Amar chords. So um, let's hear a little clip before we get going on it. Uh, so the other thing I have to tell you, if you don't know this already, is that the movie stars Cooper Hoffman uh, as 15-year-old Gary Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and truly 15 years old. And looking at, uh, and Alana Heim uh, of the of the group by the same name uh, as Alana. Neither one of these people really has any real film acting experience, unless you count movie uh, music videos, which. Um, for the group Heim, Paul Thomas Anderson actually has directed, I think, like all of them or something. Uh, anyway, they uh, play a 15-year-old named Gary Valentine uh, and a 25-year-old named uh, Alana. Uh, and here is a conversation between the two of them. So, Alana, what are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. <laughs> what business should I be in? I don't know. What do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. <laughs> so how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. <sighs> I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid, song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. And that's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as they say, and maybe more. Uh, so, James, I'm going to have you get us going. You know, there are some movies in which uh, a producer uh, and a writer and a company of actors uh, and a director all kind of come together to make some kind of magic. This isn't really that, right? This really starts and ends with Paul Thomas Anderson, and, and he's kind of emphasized that almost by getting people with no particular film acting pedigree. Uh, although we'll get into the fact that like pretty much everybody in this movie is related to somebody <laughs> with an impressive film acting ped- pedigree, and of course Sean Penn and uh, and Christine Ebersole and Tom Waits and above all. Uh, Bradley Cooper uh, are in this movie too, but but James, um, this is kind of PTA uh, saying something uh, about himself. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of like an insider movie about um, everything about the, his sort of strange relationship with the film, the mainstream film industry, which is like he's very connected to the Hollywood uh, main lines of, of filmmaking, but at the same time, he makes films that don't fit into that at all. And I think that this is, it's an, it's kind of an internal exploration. And what is strange about it is that certainly through the, from the trailer and, and its publicity, it's being sold as a film 
which is really like a, um, a quirky teenage film that would appeal to young people. But actually, I mean, I, I think it's a really intense and serious film in many ways. It has funny incidents in it, but there's a sort of incipient flying apart of the characters that is going on the whole time that doesn't feel like a comedy and it doesn't feel like something that's reassuring in any way. I I, I should preface that by saying I really like the film, um, uh, but it's not what it seems to be. It's really interesting in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson and what he tries to explore which is never right at the surface, never really clear. And then you go into it more and you start to explore the characters and you make the connection with his preoccupations. Um, and then um, I think there's, it's, it's kind of rewarding as a, as a film in that way. Yeah, there's a way in which uh, Paul Thomas Anderson never travels the straight line that is the shortest distance between two points. He's not just not going to, he doesn't have that in him. He's just the weavy right. lines all, all the way. And so, to, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering also just how the rest of our panel feels. Tanisha, for me, I get to the end of this movie and I thought, I really enjoyed this movie, but I'm not sure on what basis. Kind of to James's point, like, is it a really funny movie? Not exactly, but it's funny. Is it a real penetrating movie yeah kind of uh, but I don't even know how you feel about this movie and I'm dying to know you know I think James you kind of nailed it that it, it's very insidery I think I was mostly delighted when I saw actors I recognized and was like oh well look at that oh look at Maya Rudolph oh look look at uh, Sean Penn um, and I think you're also right that it, it is it is a movie about nothing but about something um, I think if you are a PTA fan, I think this is a movie for you. I think if you're not a, a film buff, it sort of is like, cool. You know, it's like, this is cool. The, you know, the colors are cool. You know, maybe I would have liked to live in, uh, in, in Southern California. You know, th there's nothing particularly offense. Well, let me walk that back. <laughs> It is it is middlingly middlingly offensive in the ways that you know you assume the 1970s to be, um, but yeah, you know it's it's it's. I think I'm wondering why this movie was nominated, other than the people making it, why it's being nominated for an Oscar. Oh, well, that's a, a fair question. Um, I don't really particularly have that problem, but <laughs> Tracy, I mean, like I, I'm fine with it being nominated for an Oscar. Um, Tracy, there's, you know, I thought of you watching this movie uh, for one or two reasons. But, there, you know, everything that we've talked about so far, I think, emphasizes what could be a problem with the movie, which is that it's not funny enough to really qualify as a pure comedy. And then they kind of go out on certain limbs. And there's one that I'm guessing you might be kind of eager or dreading to talk about. And that is a character played by John Michael Higgins. He is the owner of a Japanese restaurant. He has a series of Japanese wives who apparently don't really exactly speak English, but he doesn't speak Japanese at all and addresses them in kind of this pigeon uh, mm. uh, uh, English. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's funny because he's an idiot, but to get away with that kind of funny, you really kind of have to be making a movie about funny it idiots. Funny. Um, 
Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Either it is or it isn't. But, but Tracy, I mean, there's a way in which to get away with it, you'd have to be making a movie about funny idiots, which I don't think this movie is. No, it definitely felt like a let's throw this in. And I'm not sure whether it was because, hey, let's sort of highlight, you know, how racist it was back in the 70s and how it was OK to be that way. And look, we've we've come somewhat of a ways, but it, it felt like uh, it didn't feel connected to anything else in the movie as far as theme or anything like that. And I sat there cringing like I actually hugged a pillow going, really, they did this. Um, and I mean, it's. It's probably not uncommon at all from the 70s and 80s and 90s and, you know, until very recently. But I didn't think it was particularly necessary. I don't think it added anything to the film um, except to kind of be a bit of a throwaway. And like you said, it's not a comedy. So it couldn't even be used as an excuse that, oh, we were adding something funny. It was something very cringy instead. Yeah. If this I, were, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. No, I would say I totally agree with that, uh, Tracy. I, I think that it's one of those things that um, I found, I, I found it, I had the, exactly the same reaction that sort of really is this, what is this doing here? Especially in the context of when it appears in the film, it really is one of those things that uh, talking about insiders, you know, that I can imagine insiders in Hollywood sort of making that scene and sort of dying to some how throw it in somewhere because maybe somebody somewhere writing thought that was funny, but it just comes off as awkward. And I think the only context you could possibly have had that was in some sort of serious scene or serious film, another film perhaps that really, um, really went after this as being something that was a thing. And that this character suddenly pops up in the midst of this apparent comedy and, and, and it sort of plays as though, you, really, should you think this is funny? Uh, it's, it's awkward in, in, in my view. Tracy, I'm mean, so glad, Colin, you brought it up because that was where I would have gone in my opening salvo. <laughs> and I was and I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk it back because I don't want to start there. But it was such a turnoff. It made the rest of the movie really not for me. And I and I actually think that the, the case for it is about taste. And I think the case for it is about political correctness. And I think the case for it and the case for the, the movie is a kind of um, reassertion of a point of view and a perspective. And I, and it made it tough for me to, to stay open to whatever it is that that the the filmmaker was was attempting to offer to all of us, uh, yeah. because so much of that particular scene, which happens very early in the movie, is a is a hat upon a hat upon a hat of offense. Right. And so you and just they did it of... more than once. It wasn't even like, hey, let's put this in. It was like, hey, let's do it again. Yeah. And had they focused on the, you know, Japanese cuisine in the 70s was new and avant garde, you know, as they're reading kind of the publicity um, flyer about it, that would have been fine. They didn't need to throw in the other part. I, I don't right. think so. I would agree to we should say that, he, that he's actually playing a real life person named Jerry Frick, who did open the Mikado Hotel and Restaurant. I don't know if he had the particular quirk that we see there. But um, <laughs> so, Tracy, I, 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 what I didn't do was sort of take your temperature on the movie itself. Um, I, I think I have a sense <laughs> what the thermometer reading <laughs> is, but, um, but but give it to us anyway. I think I'm in the same camp as Tanisha, where it was like it was 
fine. I, I don't really understand why it was nominated because I didn't think it, you know, was it's I don't think it's the same caliber as some of the other nominees. Um, I didn't think it was funny and I didn't realize it had actually been um, advertised or, you know, touted as a comedy. And it seemed, yeah, it was a little meandering, a little frantic in some parts. And I actually didn't feel like we got to know the characters super well. I feel like we got to know Alana better, but the rest of them were pretty surface level. There wasn't a whole lot of um, evolution in them. And I mean, visually fun to watch, you know, it's, it's kind of a throwback. It's kind of fun. Um, but I'm not sure I'd watch it again. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, yeah, I think, you know, James, there's ways in which the movie, I don't know, I don't like movies that evoke other movies that much. Um, although I thought that the way that this one did was kind of interesting. I mean, you're sort of seeing the same Fernando, same San Fernando Valley that you see in Boogie Nights. There's at least one moment in this movie that is so intentionally evocative of American graffiti that it's almost impossible to miss, I would think. And there's a way in which uh, I think the film does something that other movies do which is kind of veer off into these little mini adventures. There's that little mini adventure with the Sean Penn character on the motorcycle out in the desert. There's uh, another mini adventure that uh, is complicated and involves and involves the hilarious Bradley Cooper character of John Peters, the actual uh, husband uh, uh, for a while of Barbara Streisand. Uh, and there's this, there's that kind of sense of wow, you get home from that adventure and you're a little out of breath and you're you're really glad it didn't become more disastrous than it was. And I. I think the movie, to the extent that it has things that hook us, it, that's a little bit of it, right? Yes, absolutely. I think the John Peters thing, actually, um, which seemed to be pretty close to how he was described by a lot of people, um, that was a sort of another movie in a way. Um, it belonged in another kind of movie. It's sort of, I don't know, maybe Mel Brooks or something, uh, you know, that... that um, <laughs> It was an entertaining interlude, but was totally disconnected from the film. I mean, it didn't help the character development in any way. And I think it's kind of contributed to the impression I had too, which was that this was like a can full of, um, of, of episodes that had been building and sort of been put together in a script for a long time. And they were, you know, they were kind of ideas for a movie. And the only uniting factor, I think, is is the, the, the character of Alana, who is really interesting and could go somewhere more than the film actually took it. But the film really feels like a meander through somebody's box of, of ideas. And it's certainly not as concentrated as uh, PTA's, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, other films. I think that sometimes there, there's an intellectual engagement that is just isn't it, it present in this one. And it makes me think about what was he trying to do with it? I mean, it's funny in parts, but then it's tragic. And then it's like, really, what are you saying? And then it has the racist implications. And is that funny or not? And it's like a, a, a mess, really, I would say. So uh, we, really? we mentioned, before we go to that, I just want to get this uh, clip out here because we, we just did mention Bradley Cooper as John Peters. Um, once you hear a little bit of, of this, I mean, if there's anything that's really intensely fun about this movie, I think it is Cooper's performance. So here we go, A2. See that Daytona Ferrari? Yeah. Yeah, that's mine. Gary, that's filled with gas. That's going to get me to the movies on time because I'm not a <laughs> dead idiot. I'm John Peters. My only problem in life is I don't love tail too much. 
I love it. I love it so much. I love it so much. Is that your sister? No. Is your girlfriend? No. I love it so much it's gonna kill me one day. You know how much tail I get? No. All of it. It's all mine. You like Barbara Streisand? Yeah. You do? Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah. I, I do too. Gets boring, but you know. Yeah. I'm gonna kill you and your family if you f up my house. Okay? You got no. a cat? No. You got a dog? No. Yeah, who? Your brother and sister? Brother. Go. Yeah, your brother? I'm gonna choke your brother out right in front of you. Okay, Steve's gonna look after you while I'm gone. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Gary. I want you to be horrified. Okay. Your life's on the line. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tanisha, I think I might have stepped on uh, your line as we were going to the clip. Do you remember what you were going to say? No, I was going to ask James if he thought that, you know, if there was some thread between the sort of uh, desperate parts of this movie and, like, the way that this love relationship rolls. I mean, that was sort of the way I was able to sort of reconcile it all was like well that's how relationships tend to grow in ways that are like un unpredictable and weird and non-linear and maybe that is what he's trying to help me sort of contain or consider i think that's what uh, is a good point i mean i think that's actually what the movie could have been and I think that um, actually both Alana and Cooper Hoffman are, are, are like they are uh, they they have the potential to be interesting in that way. In that there's this um, sexual energy, but at the same time there's a, a clash of experience and not experience, and and uh, having uh, in in Hoffman's case sort of having this life knowledge that is not backed up by an emotional maturity that really uh, can engage with a character like Alana. And so um, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a movie that could have had that potential, but it's in so many ways it fragments itself. And so it doesn't have that kind of feel of development of character. Yeah. Tracy, I want to talk just a little bit about these leads, too. So, um, first of all, they're going to show this movie at orthodontist conventions just to say, look, there's no need for our services anymore. You can just have really crooked teeth and be a movie star. Um, but, I mean, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son uh, looks a lot like him, but he also looks like a 15-year-old kid with really bad skin and, and funny-looking teeth. And, and Alana Haim is... I think the camera kind of wants to follow her around because she doesn't look like a conventional movie star, but she's really intriguing. It's and I I feel I want to see the quantitative analysis of this movie. I feel like I saw a lot uh, of Hoffman close-ups and not that many Alana close-ups, but maybe I just think that because I wanted to see more of her or maybe it's something the PTA and his crew did in the editing bay where they realized it, there would be something fun about us kind of wanting there's something about her that it's very, very hard to quantify. But anyway, I just should let you talk. These are very unusual leads. That's all. They are. And because I wouldn't say Alana is, you know, conventionally beautiful, but there's something very striking about her, whether it's her mannerisms or something, you know, and you feel somewhat attracted to her and the way she moves, the way she talks. Um, Cooper Hoffman. Yeah. He definitely feels that awkward, 
somewhat doughy, adorable, you know, not quite a man yet, um, definitely feeling the hormonal changes of things. But the one thing we haven't talked about yet with the two of them is there is a 10 year age difference between the characters and the actors as well. And this is, you know, she's 25, he's 15, 16 next month at one point. And, um, and it feels like it's never really addressed. It kind of is in the fact that she's interested in, in world events and, you know, figuring out what to do for her career where he's 15 and, you know, is always hustling. But those are romantic interests that are, that's the thread through this movie. And she dates one of his friends. And so there's just sort of this, like, it doesn't really get addressed that there's this 25 year old woman who is um, more than once attracted to a younger teenager, which nowadays would be, there might be some legal implications there. And I, and I don't know whether it was a commentary like seventies was just a lot more open or it was just thrown in there. <laughs> Tanisha, I wondered, I read it a slightly different way, maybe, which is that, you know, the, the Cooper Hoffman character, Gary Valentine, he's, first of all, he reminds me so much of Max in, in Rushmore. They are both hustlers trying to act older than they, they really are. They are both lusting after inappropriately older women, but kind of tr- acting as though they were kind of equals and peers of, uh, of these women. But I don't know. It's maybe a, a 15-year-old guy kind of saying, what can I get? Can I open a waterbed business? Can I open a pinball business? Can I have sex with this woman who's 10 years older than I am or at least get her to perform at least some kind of sexual act on me? <laughs> There's one in particular that is that is discussed uh, a little bit. But, you know, it's sort of like that. What can I get? Where am I? And I don't know whether that's a specifically guy thing, but it is a guy thing. Right. Guys are trying to figure out what does my current state of maleness entitle me to? I think that may be true. I think I think you're onto something about, you know, his kind of entrepreneurialism, his also being a part of the entertainment industry since he was a kid. And so there's a little bit of aging up that happens uh, and maturity that happens in working inside of the entertainment business as a young person. You know, I think, you know, for me, Tracy, the kind of arbitrary age line means a lot less to me than where the human being is. And I think part of that shift is like, I have a neurodivergent child, right? My child is five, but he is not five, right? And I think we look at a character like Cooper, who is 15, um, and he's not quite 15. His experience suggests he is, he is more in the world than a, another 15, right? My One of my favorite, uh, Dave Chappelle, who may or may not be canceled at this point, I don't know, no. uh, sketches is, you know, what is 15 really? And I would also say, you know, um, why do I, we, we keep calling Alana, Alana's character, Alana's character, so I, her character's name is escaping me. Alana. But, you know, yes, that it's woman. Yeah, it's the same name. They're both, <laughs> Alana is the actor and the character. Why? But anyway, <laughs> Alana is 25, but I don't think she's, you know, as as we learn, you know, in relationship to her family, she's she's not as accomplished. She's not as mature. She's not as far along in her life. And so the arbitrary age gap means less to me looking at these two characters. And I and I think that's not just a 70s thing. I think that's, you know, that's a real life if we're actually dealing with humans on a human level thing um, and not trying to establish a uh, a frame for everybody that works for all things all the time well then i would agree if oh sorry sorry no go ahead i was gonna say i'd agree if it were like you know um 18 and 28 even like it just seems like 15 as a number to me 
seems so young. And I appreciate what you're saying. He is a mature and worldly 15 year old. Um, but that's just a hump that I had kind of a hard time with where they didn't address more. And especially if they were 25 and 35, wouldn't have thought twice about it. You know, that's not quite the Harold and Maude situation, which is a lovely movie as well. All right. We're going to have to wrap here just in order to be able to give Drive My Car. It's due. The movie is Licorice Pizza, very much in the continuum and, and a kind of aesthetic uh, of, of Boogie Nights and a little, maybe a little bit of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And if you started to watch Winning Time, uh, which is the HBO thing about the Lakers with Jerry Buss, also played by John T. Riley, who's a perennial PTA actor. We're, we're obviously digging up one particular chronological graveyard from about 69 to 79. I'm not sure why that is, but that might be another show. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Ghost crowd, young child's fragile eggshell mind. Blood in the streets in the town of New Haven. Blood stains the roots and the palm trees of Venice. Blood in my love in the terrible summer. Bloody red sun. We uh, are about to talk about Drive My Car. Uh, an adaptation of a short story by Haruku, uh, Haruki Murakami. It is uh, written and directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, uh, who is nominated for Best Director. This is the first uh, Japanese movie ever nominated for Best Picture in the Oscars, if you care about such things. Uh, it tells the story uh, mainly uh, of an actor, a 50-ish uh, actor, uh, who uh, is dealing with um, two tragedies uh, in his own life. Um, I'm trying not to spoil too much here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, after those tragedies, uh, after the more recent of those tragedies, he does wind up uh, in, in Hiroshima uh, to direct a, a, an unusual production uh, of Uncle Vanya. Um, he uh, be, is assigned a driver. Uh, a, a young woman who uh, is going to show for him around in his uh, beloved red Saab uh, Turbo 900. It's a 1987. I believe it is up for Best Supporting Actor against Bradley Cooper. I don't know who will win the car uh, or John Peters. But um, yeah, and without much further ado, I mean, there's no way we can play clips from this because it's entirely in Japanese. Uh, but um, well, Tanisha, get us going. One thing that the other three of us were sort of commiserating about is it's hard, I think, to really fully participate in this film if you don't have some kind of clear relationship with Chekhov generally and probably specifically Uncle Vanya. And since you're the, the mega theater per person here, uh, you may be the one who has to help us out with this. But I just love your, your immediate reaction to the movie. Well, I have to say, I think I may disappoint you because I don't necessarily think you need to have a a love of Chekhov or a deep knowing of Uncle Vanya but I do think you have to have an appreciation for actors mm -hmm. and how they move and think through life because you spend a lot of time in the room and what we mean by that is like in the rehearsal room or in performance you, you, you spend a fair amount of time in this movie sort of in the mechanics of acting. I mean, there were, you know, the director uses a technique for like working through text that made me think of, you know, the classes that I'm teaching right now. It's very sort of like um, acting class, you know, kind of formats in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, as I had said in, uh, in, in my like data dump emails, you know, I went through the canon of Chekhov, Siegel and Vanya. And, you know, I 
barely remember the plots of each because for us it was about like who are you who are you working on and what does it tell you about yourself which I think is a really resonant thing when you hear you know the director speak about why he won't play Vanya because it's too close right that that is I think a true thing for Chekhov work um but I don't necessarily think if you are not uh theater if you're not theater literate and particularly deep into Chekhov that you won't connect to this work um because I surely didn't find my way in because I recalled the the sort of analytics of either that play or any Chekhovian plays you know I said we didn't have a clip the reality is that Jonathan McPants being the person he is uh, dug one he dug a hundred minutes into this movie and found during the Vanya rehearsals a moment where some of the characters actually are speaking English. So let's play that clip right now. Stop. What do you think? I think the director should be the one to judge. Terrible. Hidoi. I agree with you. I feel like we both did better during the auditions. Hmm. Do you know why? Um, because I've learned a little bit of the dialogue, so I use my partner like my acting cues. But if I don't learn the dialogue, I can't act. Okay. And I thought that this way I could um, pay more attention to other people's emotions. If I learned the dialogue perfectly, including theirs, I can react better. I see. Why don't we read the book again? So the, we should say this is linguistically, the film is uh, quite a challenge in the sense that, yes, the, briefly, there are some characters who speak English. There are a lot of characters who speak a lot of Japanese. There are, is at least one character who speaks Korean, maybe more. And there's one character who uh, communicates almost entirely in sign language. So uh, so one of two Oscar nominees this year uh, using sign language, the other one being Coda. So Tracy, uh, just yeah, give me, I just, again, I will take your temperature. Uh, what's your, what does the thermometer say about this movie? I actually really enjoyed it, despite its very long length. I did not realize when I started it at 10 o'clock at night one night that it was a three hour long movie and I was not going to get through it in one fell swoop. Um, and at first I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this and, and just enjoy it. I'm not going to enjoy it. Three hour long movies are too much. But I actually really did. And I think one of the first things that struck me is that about 45 minutes into the movie, you get sort of the opening credits of it. And so it's almost like that first 45 minutes is sort of a prologue setting up things. You know, it's it's very in-depth and it, it gives you a lot of rich detail that informs the rest of the movie. But then to put in those credits at 45 minutes was, um, I think Jonathan McPants called it a baller move. So, which really, I think it is, it's, it's a little audacious. Um, but I liked so many parts about it. I like that there wasn't a huge soundtrack to it. If any, if you heard any music, there was a place in the scene where it was coming from, a record player, whatever. Um, it made you able to focus on the characters. I liked the depth that we got from, from the characters, both Misaki and Yosuku, um, to be able to 
see them sort of grow and progress and their relationship progress together. And frankly, I loved the multilingual aspect to it. So one of the characters is the the young woman we heard there speaking English. She's Taiwanese, so she speaks Mandarin. And then you had the Korean um, Korean language, Korean sign language, and the Japanese and English. And it was just, I felt that very aspect of it kept me paying attention even more. Yeah, James, it's very much a movie about talking and communicating. Uh, there's a kind of a Bergman quality to a lot of the scenes where the characters talk into the middle distance as opposed to directly to each other. Some of that is accentuated by the relationship between a driver in the front seat and a passenger, a person being driven uh, in the back seat. But it's, it is very much, as Tracy's suggesting, a movie about how we talk and what we say when we talk. Yeah, I think that's true. And actually, I think that's the, um, the the reason for the direct connection to Chekhov and Uncle Vanya, where um, you can easily sort of go through a, a, a Chekhov play and feel that it's just sort of all talk and it's endless talk. And then at the end of the play, it's not really resolved. But in this case, it's kind of like a lever, the theatrical performance, the veracity of the theatrical performance by the individual actors is really based on finding their truth and being able to express themselves. And we mentioned uh, the signing, uh, the young woman signing. Uh, I thought she was actually maybe the, the most expressive character in the film, even not knowing sign language and having to rely on the subtitles. The precision which with which she seemed to use signing um, and the expression on her face when she was doing it, it's like she was a catalyst for the other characters, at least two of the other characters, to begin to have more sort of sense of the significance of what this process was. And it appears to be the preparation of the play. And uh, it's actually about the uh, about the characters and their ability to get somewhere else that that out of their real lives, they were able to use the experience that was going on to actually grow personally. And I do sort of agree with this thing about the length, you know, and, and the, the having the uh, credits 40 minutes in is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a bold statement. I agree. It's like, okay, you know, prepare to be here for a while. I think it could have been considerably shorter. But that said, I don't think I've seen a film in many years that really attempted to deal with the inner self that's locked away for one reason or another. And that that was really satisfying. I mean, I, 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 I do want to see this film again. I think, you know, uh, Tanisha, the other thing we want to see uh, we wish we could see is that production, right? At the end, we see the production of Vanya, and it's it it, it just and there's I don't want to spoil anything. We shouldn't spoil anything, but the the final scene in Vanya is there's such a huge payoff there involving the character who does use sign language. It's rare, I think, to have so much energy in in a thing like this building up towards a play within a movie or uh, or anything like that. And, and have it pay off so well. At least that's that's where I found myself going. Oh, we are so like-minded. And, and when uh, James was talking about the precision of um, the sign language um, and then that final moment, I mean, it is so gorgeous. And, you know, in this time, I guess it, it did kind of make me think of as a theater maker, you know, this time where you, you don't often see this, you know, mesh of languages um, in a single 
movie, let alone, you know, play out in this play. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I thought to myself, oh, my God, there's no more perfect way for Vanya to end than in a, in a kind of silence, right? Um, that is so complete and full um, and full of his language, but, but, but quiet. Um, it was really, really, really beautiful. Um, I, I, I agree that uh, I wouldn't have minded seeing the full production play out um, with Sonia. Um, oh yeah, no, uh, I'd be on the next, um, next plane to Hiroshima, particularly because they have, they seem to have some kind of multimedia screen that drops down yes. at the play mm -hmm. that tells you all the stuff that you don't know, uh, which I would absolutely need in, in a situation like that. Some kind of electronic Rosetta stone to, to help me with the, all the language stuff. You know, um, Tracy, one of the other thoughts that I had is there are a lot of ways in which this movie could have, I don't know, treaded too much across the terrain of obviousness. And I'll give you an example. There's a, a a scene also near the end of the movie where one of the characters goes to her hometown uh, and, and where something horrible has happened and where the thing that kind of shaped her life happens and kind of walks down into an actual hole, into a crater. And then after a scene there, walks back up having sort of interrogated her past and herself and seems to be changed and transformed. And it's really the pivotal moment of the movie for those two characters. I don't know. That could have been, that could have seemed like a pretty heavy handed trope, but somehow or other doesn't. Uh, I'm not sure how the director pulls this off, but somehow or other, we don't feel like we're being over instructed at that moment. And I think there's two things that come into play there. You know, neither, nobody in this, in in the entire movie is overly emotional, right? A lot of it is, I don't wanna say deadpan, but it's very even keeled, even in the emotional moments. Um, it's sort of that quiet, understated. And even after the transformation happens, even though there's more emotion, you can feel that shift, you can feel that change very deeply, even the way it's played out is not overly so. There's still the subtlety to it. And it's sort of almost like a silent understanding more. And I think that's where it, it, it succeeds in not falling into the trope or the obvious or what you expect to have happen is because there is just that underlying, you know, heaviness, but uh, heaviness, then a little lightness, but still that heaviness is there. You know, they understand that full transformation may not happen. Right. And I think they even acknowledge that in the dialogue. Right. Although there's this rather enigmatic ending uh, where we wonder exactly how much transformation has happened. It seems, Correct. Seems, that too. It seems like maybe a lot. And certainly somebody got a much more expensive hair appointment than she had been getting uh, <laughs> prior to that. Uh, all right. We and the car. Someone has to explain to me the coda. I really... I really need. I really need James's. Uh... Well, we can't. We can't say too much about it. I like. I don't really don't want to like, spoil anything for anybody. But right. uh, it's... I think I. I do think you could explain that. That uh, my impression certainly of the car is that it represents enclosure. I won't say more than that, but uh, enclosure about characters and ability to express beyond that. I mean, we talked about. Um, I, I mean, some of the power of the exposition of the end of the film comes from the fact that it's so contemplative and seemingly slow at certain points, but it's that very contemplative quality of the characters who are enigmatic and you're not quite sure where they're going that makes the final explanations or the final uh, uh, directions of the story so powerful. All right. We do have to stop there. I think the best advice uh, is to build on what uh, Tracy Wufastenberg told you. 
Start this movie like around 5.30 p.m. Don't try to watch this movie while you're tired <laughs> because those moments of stillness and quietness, which can stretch on for quite long periods of time in this movie, it's a three-hour movie and it kind of feels like four at times and that's not uh, by any means a statement of disrespect. Have lots of energy or an energy drink with you when you watch Drive My Car. And we're back. So fortunate to have uh, the master himself, not from the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Uh, Gene Amatruda is here in the booth uh, to be an our technical producer for the day. As usual, the producer of The Nose is Jonathan McPants. Uh, and uh, so thanks very much to him and thanks to our panelists who are now going to make some recommendations. James Hanley, why don't you get us going? Um, well, I happen to be reading a book uh, by a Jamaican author or formerly Jamaican author called The Day I Fell Off My Island uh, by Yvonne Bailey Smith. And she actually is well known in her own right, I think more in the UK, perhaps, but she's the mother of uh, Zadie Smith, the writer and the uh, children's book author, Ben Bailey Smith. And she has another child uh, who is uh, lyricist Luke Skies. And it's a really lovely book about um, culture about leaving Jamaica and going to the UK and uh, a, a, an incredible biography, really delightful. And the language in it, which includes Patois, that is quite well easily understood if you're not familiar with it. The Day I Fell Off My Island by Yvonne Bailey Smith. And one last thing, um, last night we went to one of our favorite restaurants that I don't think gets mentioned enough, uh, the Shish Kebab House of Afghanistan on the cell road in West Hartford. And what a lovely place that is. The food is great. And the staff who run it, we've known, we've been going there to their establishment since they were in the south end of Hartford on Franklin mm. Avenue. Um, highly recommended. Yeah, great place. Uh, good recommendations. Uh, Tanisha Dugan, why don't you go next? I will surely go next. It's springtime. And so I am, you know, thinking about the garden. Uh, so I'm going to endorse three places that I get seeds. Uh, one is botanical interests. All of these are online. Uh, like many others, I started this obsession during lockdown and it hasn't escaped me. It's my Jamaican roots, I think. Uh, botanical interests, that is one. Um, florette flowers, um, they've got just a really cool selection of like odd things uh, if you're into the florals. Um, and Melanated Organics, uh, which is a Black-owned um, seed company, and they uh, focus on sort of um, African-American, Caribbean, and African uh, heirloom seeds. So those are three places that uh, I've been ordering from these past couple weeks and i think in the next week or two you'll be able to start to get outside but at the very least uh plant indoors hmm. that's great well great as usual uh, a great and very unusual recommendation i love it uh <laughs> so tracy Wu fastenberg how about you I'm going to second Tanisha's there, just get the garden going, and I'll add Pine Tree Garden Seeds in there, which is a family-owned business up in Maine, and fantastic selection. Um, I am going to endorse Here We Read, which is Here We, W-E-E, -E, read. They're um, on Instagram, and Sharnay Gordon, who runs it, is actually local here in Connecticut, but has a national following, and I'm constantly asked, like, oh, you know, what are, what are some good books for the kids, you know, to sort of introduce diverse characters and everything? 
she's got it all covered here. She also has a wonderful initiative trying to bring diverse books to all 50 states. So she fundraises and brings them out, you know, to, to different communities. And it's just a, a lovely purpose, but also a lovely resource as well. All right. Well, uh, since you guys are uh, endorsing seeds and gardens, I will endorse something that I, I've discovered recently called Pushing Daisies, which is a TV show that uh, aired actually in from 07 to 09. I never saw it at the time. I was aware that it had kind of an interesting fan base uh, and it is now discoverable uh, on HBO Max. Uh, it is one of several... Uh, things that we've seen recently, uh, the, the, the Good Place by Michael Schur might be uh, one of the possible analogs to it that explores sort of life after death or or ways that you can kind of play around with the division between life and death for comic purposes. Um, and, and some of the fun of it also is that it is that rare television show that um, employs a number of fairly gifted stage actors. Uh, Kristen Chenoweth uh, has a major role in this, for which I think she maybe maybe even won an Emmy uh, way back in the day. Uh, and um, there's actually, I just saw an episode which pairs her with Raul Esparza, himself also a kind of a giant uh, of the New York stage and uh, maybe most notably was one of the people to play Bobby in one of the revivals of Company. So uh, the thing itself is a lot of fun. It has a really interesting uh, background cast, people that you don't get to see that often. Other stage performers like Ellen Green and Susie Kurtz uh, have major roles. Jim Dale is the narrator. Uh, so if you if you kind of like theater and the theatrical presentations, the two leads are actually people that I, I don't really know very much. That One of those is a guy named Lee Pace, and the other one is Anna Friel. I really don't know their work very much. But, you know, for people who are looking around for something to watch that's Maybe not terribly disturbing, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting and challenging and funny and does some interesting stuff. Uh, this is kind of a nice, safe choice. Oh, and I would throw in that category. I only recently discovered this series. I'm not really the world's biggest Ricky Gervais fan, but um, but my partner started watching Afterlife, um, which I have to say, I sort of joined in for the second season in particular and really thought was just terrific uh, about a guy trying to figure out what to do after the death uh, of his wife uh, and maybe a little bit of kinship with some of the themes that come up in Drive My Car, but not the exalted artistic work that that clearly is. All right. Thanks very much to our wonderful panel uh, that uh, includes James Hanley, Denisha Dugan and Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Thanks to the team that puts this show together. Um, we have some really exciting shows coming up next week. Uh, if you're listening on Friday, Saturday, I believe we are going to replay at noon my in interview with Harvey Firestein. I really recommend it uh, if you didn't get to hear it yet. And we have a terrific show coming up. I think it's going to be on Tuesday about games. Across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. Cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon. Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.